show about art and ideas created by a team of artists. We are broadcasting from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to our Indigenous listeners and their elders past and present. My name is David Capra. My name is Aurora Scott. My name is Abdul Abdullah and we've got a special guest in the in the booth this morning. My name is Tina. <laughs> <laughs> got my beloved sausage dog with us in the studio. He's trying to eat my hot chocolate at the moment. You can check out our Instagram story and uh, see a little video of her <laughs> hanging out with us. Today we've got a big show lined up. Sitting on the near the mic. Oh dear. Ah, 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 ah. She just got my croissant. Tina! Okay. <laughs> That's okay. In the studio today, we are joined by Rennie Codgers and Mark Shaw to discover to discover what they have in common and to d- discuss all things Kenny Rogers. We talk to the iconic Sydney artist Gail Priest about her ex- exhibition "Sounding the Future" at UTS Gallery. Plus, all the tracks this week come from this month's resident curator, Post Motel. But before that, what did we do this week? Uh, well, I saw a few. I saw a few plays this week. Um, I saw Diving for Pearls, which is on at Griffin Theatre Company. Oh yes, um, which is really incredible. It's got Ursula Jovic in it and Stevie Rogers. Oh, Ursula's amazing. She, what a great performer. She, her voice is incredible. Sorry, and so, yeah, what is going Tina's going on through over the... there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Diving for Pearls is set is set in uh, Shell Harbour around Wollongong. And I actually, oh, I visited right. um, Thoreau yesterday, which yes. is right in that area, to see Rosie Deacon's show. Mm. Oh, Rosie's great. Yeah, it was excellent. She built a kind of like 10-foot-tall kangaroo on the corner of a street and people could jump in the pouch. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke on panels at Fairfield Museum and Gallery and at Peacock Gallery at Auburn for the show We Are All Affected with my collective 11 for the Big Anxiety Festival and thank you David you came along to one yeah, of those Yeah it was Fairfield. beautiful what a great discuss- discussion more of it I think um, you've got it you, there was, there's been three discussions so yeah, far Yeah there was also show. one at 4A yeah. um, it's, and the Big Anxiety seems like a really huge festival expanding it's all huge. over Sydney Yeah also, Stephen Payton opened at Coman Gallery and Consuelo Cavanagila opened at Cronenberg Wright. But two shows that I really, really, really recommend. And also, last night I had the privilege of meeting the Refugee Arts Program in Parramatta and we uh, we made some paintings together, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, they're incredible. I own a few of their books. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, they're really beautiful. I saw Beautiful, the Carol King musical. Was that last night? No, it was a few... I went... I, it was a few... It was on... Tuesday, I think, oh, cool, cool. and it's really it was very beautiful. It was very moving, actually. She, um, it's quite amazing that she's behind so many of the fifties and sixties um, songs. She penned them with her husband, like "Up on a Roof." I've been singing that all week, and um, and yesterday Tina and I judged Wolf, which um, was an art show, art prize for dogs. And Percy, age seven, he made this beautiful work um, called "Diary of a Dog." Um, which uh, which took out the um, the youth category. Oh, I saw that photo maybe on Facebook yeah. or Instagram or something. Yes. Very sweet. Sweet chat. kid. Well, our first segment today is um, with the director of Belle Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Um, she's a self-described feminist theatre maker and her name's Anne-Louise Sarks. I got to speak to her 
um, in my parents' apartment, actually, <laughs> surrounded by my baby photos with my uh, good friend, Johnny Hawkins, who is an actor who was lucky enough to see the production in Perth. And uh, it's touring around Australia at the moment, but it's about to come to Sydney. So uh, she told us all about it. I was at Sydney Uni and I was directing and sort of doing some acting. Even at the very beginning, like I kind of wanted to make a thing or tell a story. I um, wasn't very good at auditioning. Like I'm really um, nervous as an actor. So I think the acting was a bit frustrating. And then it was such a relief with directing because it was just bigger than me. All of a sudden it was like, oh, it's not about me. It's not about selling myself. I'm just going to tell a story and these people want to tell that story too. And like it just... For whatever reason, it totally released something in me. I'm going to be honest. Oh, I, that makes me nervous. No, no, no. It's not like it's not controversial at all. I just still am waiting to be convinced. <laughs> I don't. I don't really love Shakespeare. Sure. And, and I often sit there and wonder, like, why it's still going on. Totally. <laughs> still... No, I have that experience too. Is the truth? Look, when I got offered the job. I honestly, I laughed. Really? Like, honestly, I never thought I would do a Shakespeare. Never, ever. Because people talk a lot about how great the... I mean, one of the things that I really try to do is to um, put women at the centre of all of my works. And um, people talk about how great the women are in Shakespeare. And I don't think they're that great. Like, so controversial to say this. I get nervous when I talk about this stuff because I just feel like all of these kind of angry men about Shakespeare are going to kind of find me and attack me. And I was sort of braced for that, but that's a slightly separate conversation. Um, the, the women are kind of... They're, they're okay. Like, they have a couple of good moments, maybe, mm. and are sort of raised up to be these extraordinary um, roles. So I read this play, and the truth is that I was surprised at how dark and ugly it was yeah. because people revere this play and and um, and it's a comedy, supposedly. And this weird thing happened where I kind of had all of these questions that I didn't know how to answer. And I was like, well, maybe this is what's exciting about this project. The biggest problem with this play is that it's an anti-Semitic play and why on earth would you, would you put that on stage? And for me, my biggest fear as an artist was that I was in some way adding to the kind of darkness and ugliness of the world right now. Very scary in the yeah. making because yes. if it tips the wrong way, then I'm just an asshole. Yeah. Um, I hope that the production is very clearly saying, l look at the ugliness that is unleashed here yeah. and has a really clear perspective on that. And I'm, yeah. that's really important to me. Like I don't want people leaving going, it's complex, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I saw, when I saw it in Hobart, this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I feel awful as a Christian. And I was like, great, <laughs> I'm so glad. One of the things I worked really hard on with this version of Merchant was how clear the storytelling was. Like I, I didn't want it to be a play for Shakespeare lovers. Like I want them to, to enjoy themselves, absolutely. But actually I want everyone to understand what the hell is going on inside this work and and for that to be accessible and maybe all of that's a long way of saying it felt like there was a real opportunity to sort of crack open some of that play yeah. in a way that you you can't do with an existing kind of text that's still within copyright so it turned out there was a, a freedom inside the Shakespeare that I hadn't expected and um, and I was really happy to exploit that. Like I was changing lines and giving women some of the men's lines and like there's a whole lot of stuff. If you were following the script page by page, you'd be like, 
Right. What's happening here? And people do that. Bell audiences do follow the script, which is like incredible to me, but not at all the point of a theatre show. Honestly, I thought I'm going to go down for this. But that's okay because when I go down for it, this is like the way you have to kind of talk to yourself in your own mind. You're, gonna, you're probably going to get nailed for this show. But when you're nailed, you want to be certain that you have fulfilled everything that you wanted to fulfill and then who cares? One by Charles, and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 and on digital around the world. 
Ronnie Codgers is the glamorous southern gent who has been entertaining audiences from Sydney to New York for the past 10 years, best described by John Waters as the love child of Willie Nelson and Carlotta. His performances dynamically combine the best of southern American hospitality with the brashness of a Sydney summer. Ronnie, welcome to the studio. Nice to be here, friend. <laughs> so, um, Rennie, we, this is a show about art and ideas. What do you think about art? Well, well, I, I'm a big fan of portraiture. I, I like something to be what it is, and I like I like portraiture because it gives me a chance to to look in 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 the, in the eyes, look 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 the person or the painting in the eyes, and, and get a, a real sense of you know because you know because because windows are the eyes to the soul time, and 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 I, I I just like to confirm that whenever I'm around artists, you know, try and find the eye. If there's not an eye in a painting, I look for it. I'm always looking for orifices, trying to find <laughs> find the way in. Okay, and what what art do you have in your like your bar at home, your den? What what do you have? What are your prized possessions there? Well, all portraits, but portraits of chimpanzees. Beautiful. So there's a lovely portrait of uh, uh, Clint Eastwood up there as a chimpanzee, <laughs> right. and also a lovely Jimmy Carter uh, as a and a orangutan, and and th there's a few others that I cannot mention. But sorry, yeah. Tina's running amok. <laughs> should... You got a question there, Abdul? I, I certainly do. Rennie, get Tina does out. Tina need a little bit of loving? Because I remember <laughs> last time we had to get the skin on skin, and then yeah. and that kind of calmed her down. We we were you, there was lots of talk of man and beast, and that um, that beautiful connection, man and beast have yeah but we need to move beyond uh certain senses of you know of, of hierarchies and and I, I do believe that me and tina overcame one of the great hierarchies between man and beast on that day when she slid up my belly and i felt like we were one <laughs> uh, rennie i had the pleasure of dining at kenny rogers roasters when i was in singapore last time oh, yes a magnificent chicken experience can you tell us a little bit about your passion for food well, once again, uh, it's quite singular. Uh, I basically just like to eat sausage. <laughs> it's interesting because it starts off so simple. You say, well, you know, I, I just eat sausage. But a true connoisseur actually knows that there are almost, you know, infinite numbers of sausages because it's all about what you fill with it. And so I, I like pork sausages. I, I like pork and mushroom. I, I like... Uh, you know, I like sausage dogs, but, <laughs> but I, I prefer not to eat them because it, it, the sound that it makes is not very pleasant. So usually I just use it as a kind of like, you know, like people lick salt, I lick a dog to kind of get the, cleanse the palate, and then we, we keep going. But so sausages, Abdul, are my favorite cuisine. And a sausage dog's the only dog that you'd lick as a salt lick? Generally speaking, but, you know, sometimes you can't pick and choose. You know, when you're in the desert, you drink whatever's in front of you. <laughs> And, and I imagine he must live a pretty crazy life on the road, and which would lead to many celebrity encounters. What are some of the ju like juicier celebrity encounters? Well, well uh, you know, I, I probably have to say that one of the main celebrity encounters I, I, I had was with uh, Malcolm Turnbull, actually. Oh. I shook his hand and gave a little bit of a tickle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, there's other ways to power this planet and he said how and so i whispered in his ear and we're under it now we're, we've solved it 
What? What? Like I always wondered, what's a politician like Malcolm Turnbull's handshake like? It's actually uh, greasy. <laughs> it's hard to hang on to. It slips off, which which is okay because you know you never turn down a greasy hand. You always take it and use it. So I, I mean, you just got to own it. And and his greasy hand is, you know, I still use the grease off it regularly to um, power all sorts of like encounters. <laughs> and uh, for those that um, are not here, not can't actually see you um, here in the studio, you've actually stripped down to your to your underwear. Um, Would you like me to go further, David? <laughs> I just want to know why. Why did you feel the need? Was it was it Tina that that made you strip into your to your undies today? Your bonds? No. Well, I think it was all of you. The heat was so much that I thought, you know, there's no point in hardening it. We, we need to let out the steam and not True. just hold it in. Because you didn't want my stink to fill the room, did you? This way it, it sort of aerates the armpits and keeps me fresh. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your um, homeland of the grand US of A. What do, you think about, what do you think about your homeland? Does it hold a special place in your heart? Well, well I, I kind of have adopted my new homeland, which is... Uh, I like to think of as one of the largest uh, territories on the planet, which is the water mass. So okay. I suppose you, I still have memories of my, my great homeland of, you know, Texas. And uh, and I'll always hold it fondly because it's the one country in the world where you can do whatever you want to do. True. And no one's going to, you know, give you shit for it. Like you want to have a den full of Clint Eastwood chimpanzee paintings, you can. You want to just eat sausage and shove sausage and lick sausage, you can. <laughs> You want to move to the largest uh, mass on the planet, which is the water domain. You can. So, you know. And what do you think also of of Donald, Donald Trump, who's taken over your your US of A? Yeah. I don't really know what you mean. You mean, what do I think of the, the president? Mm. Well, what a lot of people, I think, don't seem to understand is that look, technically the head of my country, if you call me a US citizen, is, is not Donald Trump. It's uh, Kim Jong-un. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what What do you think of them? Well, to be honest, I, I don't have a clear opinion because every time we've met, I've struggled to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> sure, fair enough. And I've gone off the body language as best I can. And I think that he was saying that he likes cupcakes. Do you, you were, we're about to play a song that mm. you've picked. Can you tell us about that song and why you chose it oh this is you know one of my favorite songs of all time it's a it's a country music jam it, it, it's an interpretation I, I love covers and and this is just one of the best ones I've ever heard and and I have a real soft spot for Willie I used to play him on my program here all the time and this album from the album I believe Stardust is just a great 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 album and this is the best song off it so Thank you so much, Randy. Smiling at me, nothing but blue skies. Do I see blue birds singing a song? Nothing but blue skies from now on. I never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Noticing the days hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly by blue 
on FBI Radio 94.5 and in the studio now we have Mark Shorter. Mark Shorter is the man behind Rennie Codgers. <laughs> uh, again, I've just, I'm just reading what's on the page. <laughs> there, were, there were some stumbles written down, I reckon. Sorry. Uh, no, no. Mark Shorter lives and works in Melbourne, is a lecturer in sculpture and spatial practice at the Victorian College of the Arts. He has developed and performed identities such as the body country music singer Rennie Codgers, the journeyman Tino Labamba and the time traveling landscape painting critic Schillem Schillem Gurgen. Schleim Gurgeln. Oh, thank you very much for that. It, mean, it means phlegm gargler. That's a terrific name. Mm. And, and welcome to the studio. Thank you. <laughs> so, Mark, when you talk about your work, you often like to talk about binaries. What sort of binaries are you interested in? Oh, that's, that's, that's a, a loaded question. question. <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't know. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess more generally uh, interested in, I suppose, the kind of the constructions we make for ourselves to mm. kind of occupy, you know, our identity. Um, uh, I suppose the way we might have like a dominant kind of figure and then everything else is just another, is just a sort of a, a generalised concept of it. So, so the way we might construct things that we occupy through kind of a simple kind of structure um like you might have a um yeah like a dominant sort of male kind of construction of masculinity when actually there's like a lot more nuance to it so a nuance to being kind of 
a maleness. And so I suppose uh, to to break that binary, you want to kind of explore more of the nuance. You don't want to kind of just occupy the simplistic structures of how we might construct ourselves. Mm. And you recently moved to, to Melbourne and you work at the Victoria College of the Arts in the sculpture department in the spatial practice and sculpture section there. And you are... And you're considering sculpture more and more in your own work. And ArtBank commissioned you to make this kinetic work that debuted at the the uh, Rennie Codgers and Friends fundraiser night. What what work was that? Can you talk us through that? Gosh, I, I gotta remember what we called that. Like, I think yeah. the point <laughs> the point being with that work, it was um, yeah, I we'll have to. Oh, that's right. It was called Big Pinky. Um, uh, so it sort of had an erotic kind of quality to it but I, I kind of thought of it as like a mechanical kinetic sculpture that kind of spoke to a to a kind of a self-portrait or something um the way it, like like kind of like alluded to a particular kind of uh figure like it was clunky it, it moved awkwardly and when you worked with it you looked kind of awkward it was a bit like rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time that was the kind of the the way you kind of looked when you occupied the space of the sculpture but I I suppose with it all, any kind of return to sculpture, I don't know if I'd think about it like that. So I, I kind of think of that work as part of all the other works. So it might be an access point to understanding, say, Rennie Codgers, or it might be an, uh, an access point into understanding more broader concepts of masculinity that, that have been working through in the in the practice. But it's not like a movement towards one thing. It's more just another um, kind of object amongst a constellation of ideas that can be read together. So... Um, I suppose that's the key to it. It, it. it might be an individual sculpture, you know, it's like a work, but I always want it to be part of other things or read through other things. So it's not like you can't just sum it all up, all up in that spot or say, oh, it's a movement over to here. It's like it's always connected to its past or to other kind of iterations. And I think that's why it was so good to launch it at like a cabaret mm. event. So, it, you know, you could put it in a, you know, a white cube and it could have a very um, kind of austere kind of considered seriousness about it because you know it's you know it's made out of teak it's got this elegant kind of frame and it's you know it's quite a beautiful object and eggs sat in it yeah and you turned it you turned it and then like a large pinky finger that was i get a little bit distended sort of poked the eggs and kind of popped them down the chute so that yeah and you're meant to lie underneath it was that some a concept and then the egg would s- fall on you you know i like i like that that's how you're thinking about it david because <laughs> yeah, i, must I, I never fantasy. i never yeah i never thought of lying underneath it but now you mention it it's like what would you put under it your mouth or yes. or the small of your back and let the eggs just crack on it and just dribble <laughs> over your body because because mm. that could be next and if we can just get access to this damn thing we could do it now but <laughs> but again like i suppose that's the thing like so that the object was meant to be kind of a sensual, kind of erotic, but clunky. I like the idea that it's sort of clunky, but eventually leads up to something really intensely intimate, like you being under it and maybe an egg falling on, on your back. Sounds lovely. Well, um, <laughs> you also made a recent work for um, the first public body at Artspace, and it was called Six Metres of Plinth. Can you talk us through what occurred in that performative work? So in that work, I made a, a plinth that was um, built a little bit like one of those, um, uh, you know, those uh, pub ho- horse things, you know, that like you ride, you know, those, I'll describe it differently. It's basically a plinth that had underneath it a hydraulic system mm. so that mm. the plinth was not like a stable structure like you might normally think of 
a plinth. It rather was a kind of a, a structure with agency. And so the idea was like how, how, you know, that historical relationship between the male figure and the plinth and how that kind of was negotiated with, with this plinth that wasn't clear. So when the, the, it was a performance as well as a sculptural sort of work. So when I engaged with the plinth, I walked the plinth. And so as I walked the plinth, the plinth came back at me. So it was a constant negotiation between the male figure and this traditional support structure so that eventually it kind of, I guess it just got messy because mm -hmm. the plinth never really kind of settled. I mean, it did once the hydraulics had moved completely up, but even then it was not completely settled. It was a kind of an awkward kind of object. And as it met the... Um, the figure which was mine, it, it was a constant negotiation. So there was an uneasiness throughout. And I mean, I, I was interested in, in that idea of the relationship with the, between the plinth and the figure, but also the relationship between kind of like how you might, you know, um, uh, walk a particular way or hold a mm. particular stance because the plinth governed the stance or governed the walk as opposed to you kind of it, it, like the plinth almost choreographed the walk it choreographed the the figure and so i was interested in how the figure had to bend to the had to bend to the will of the plinth basically. and the plinth so you kind of basically um well it looked like you were humping this plinth but you're also negotiating these ceramic towers that looked and you described them as almost like the molds of inside someone's anus well, I, I guess maybe a little, like, like certainly pooish. Yes. Like, so, <laughs> like, kind of like some kind of creation that, that might come out of, and, of that area. And as the plinth moved higher, um, you it made it more difficult to negotiate these these towers and they were kind of falling all over the place. And I remember the smell of Dankarub was in the air and it was quite a visceral experience. Well, I mean, you got to... I, I wouldn't say that I'd, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very well trained walking sure. at plinth. So, right. so the Dankarub was just to avoid any accidental sure. injuries and hopefully lubricate any areas that were left un, um, unmoistened. But... But yeah, like I suppose that was part of it, like having these sort of objects on the plinth that um, kind of also were destabilized by the relationship between the figure and the and the plinth itself, and yeah, and the way they kind of squashed and moved and shifted. Looking back, I think that it might have been interesting if they'd been soft, so they yes. could have like yeah. But anyway, you live and learn. Mm. It seems these, these, your performance practice takes an enormous amount of focus. Like, what type of preparation do you undergo? Uh, before getting into character? Um, well, yeah, I, I guess it depends on what the performance is. But yeah. um, getting into character, I think we're always getting into character. You know, I mean, you know, when we go and have dinner with our family, you know, we sometimes have to kind of just, we might not do it self-consciously much, but we, you know, we adjust to all sorts of situations. And I think, um, you know, like when we go to work, we sometimes kind of have to center ourselves in a certain way to go and do it. We can't just be in that relaxed kind of space that we might be with, you know, familiar friends or whatever. Um, so I, I guess I just treat each performance on its merits. So even coming here, I I thought, oh, I'll need to prepare myself to kind of know that I'll be present in, in the space to kind of deliver whatever I'm going to deliver. Um, but, I mean, it depends on the performance. So, for instance, I did a performance ages ago, actually, back in 2007, that was called The Heat Is On, and the idea behind that was to create an environment in the gallery where um, people would, would basically interact on a really bodily level, um, even if they didn't want to. So they'd walk into the sauna and they'd meet Rennie Codgers and he'd say, you might not even know this, but right now I'm entering your body with all my bodily fluids. You know, <laughs> this, this kind of space. And... 
And so to prepare for that, actually, it took a long time. When you had to, well, when you build the sauna, and I built it, like that's a preparation. It sort of gives you a space of owning what what it is that you're going to be working with. But another one was I, I actually just joined a, a gym and I, I'd sauna every day, just trying to push wow. my my oh. saunering my saunering capacity. And I also, you know, you, you research. I built the sauna with a Finnish guy, and he he sort of showed me how he sauntered. And he told me that over there, you know, the sauna is like a really communal space. People cook sausage in it and stuff like that. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got the sausage out and cooked some sausage. And, and just so I suppose all of those things prepare. Because I think like a performance is, is a very f- sort of, in some respects, a focused space. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's a very diverse sort of space, and it incorporates everything so you might not necessarily talk about the finnish guy and making the sauna in the when you're doing the performance but it informs the everything like the way that you're constructing or producing something and and the nuance of it mark i'm i'm wondering when did you start your performance practice oh well the rennie codges thing was first in 2005 but um i've always done i guess certain kind of performance works so um I mean, back when I was at the National Art School, I, I used to do um, performances with a with a guy called Craig Shufton, and we, we started a band, and it was just sort of a quirky band that was, I, I guess, inspired by Laurie Anderson's tape violin, and so we, we made all sorts of things using tape gear and stuff, and I, I used to have a dictaphone and wobble it around with a piece of latex. That was something we did. I don't know. It, it was this sort of strange sort of experimental kind of stuff with sound and and delivery i think at the heart of it was probably very much about um delivery and and thinking about how these ideas that were just so solipsistic or something you know so internalized and self selfish i guess ideas and how they might exist if they were broadcast beyond your own head um that but that was ages ago so that was back in when i was like 20 um but yeah so and yeah so i suppose um, since then, sort of dabbled in it all the time and different ways of performing, like doing stand-up comedy for a bit and other things and being useless at it, but finding other things to kind of do and just sort of understanding the space of, of an action and understanding what an action can, can do, can transform an idea and also transform uh, an environment. So there's always been that with the work. And, and when, in answer to your question about like, oh, I'm moving into this or moving into that, I kind of think that like whether it's a sculptural work or whether it's another installation, I think that all the objects and all the things that are involved in making or producing an idea, they're fluid. They all connect and they all um, inform the ultimate thing. And even if someone hasn't seen every single performance or read about this or read about that, you'd like to think that anything they did see was an access point into a grander vista, a grander space. So, Like yeah, an accumulation? Yeah. yeah, and everyone's accumulating differently, but everyone can accumulate and 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 enter the conversation wherever they've accumulated to. Yeah, that would be my ideal. But I mean, that's an ideal. People look at it and go, "Oh, fuck that." <laughs> and we're about to watch a little clip. Can you um, can you explain what we're about to listen to? All right. Yeah, I, I didn't realize you were going to show this, but um, this is me as Rennie Codgers meeting Kenny Rogers. And the funny thing about this was. Uh, we uh, travelled down to Wollongong to, to crash his party, but it was harder to get into Wollongong. Um, <laughs> look oh, I'm touching it. Oh, I'm going to run down the street till we meet sweet love, boy. You know, I followed you from Wollongong. You can't run away. Oh, damn it, boy. Come on. 
So we can see Kenny Rogers actually he's in going his, away. He's, his, he's getting away in his, his van. Limousine. But then the van stops and he, he opens the door and he draws me over. He says, come over w here. He goes, you're so cool. He, he says, you're amazing. And he's just shocked. Actually looked a bit like my my grandmother looked at me once at a performance, like in absolute <laughs> shock. But but I guess also like joy, uh, something between that. Yeah. I don't know. It probably goes like jo joyous to nervousness. But um, yeah, so we we weren't able to get in and, and crash him at Wollongong. So we we waited till Sydney. And strangely, Sydney's easier to to, <laughs> to crash a celebrity if you are interested. Um, because when they come out of the state theatre, they've got to go on George Street on a Saturday night. That the traffic's not going anywhere. Well, now there's tram tracks, so I guess mm. you're screwed. Back back in the day when George Street was just, you know, road, you could crash anyone from Kenny Rogers to Bruce Springsteen to Katy Perry. But now, what's left, you know? What was that like meeting Kenny Rogers? <laughs> as, you, as you probably heard, like I saw, it was so brief, I, I don't really know. I, I, I think it was more about, um, like, uh, not meeting him in Wollongong that was more important. Like, um <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it was. I don't think he, he looked up the website or anything. So I think we, we had a very brief meeting. And, and speaking of, of, of um, unless his lawyers did, <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. Um, can it's, we? It's moved on from that so much anyway. Like yeah. when it, when the project first started, actually, it was only meant to be a one off. Like right. It was just going to be a really bad concert, and it was just going to be no one would want to see that again. But and I know a lot of people don't want to see it again. So <laughs> to you out there. <laughs> Um, you're just as much inspiration, but the other, but then other people, a lot of people did want to see it again. And so they said, I'll come back and do some MCing. So, mm. so I just developed mm. out of that. But, um, what was I going to say? But now it's not really even about Kenny Rogers. It's just more about a kind of a, a perverse kind of unwieldy dominant masculinity mm. and, and just trying to probe it and rip out its core and shove it back in something else. What do you think of Brenny Hodges? What, what's um, he like? What's his politics like? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're my politics, I suppose, aren't they? Well, uh, no, I mean, if if you just say what his politics were, like, as to be literal about it and say, oh, what mm. does he, well, I, I guess he's a, he's a, he's a liberal, but mm. in the most excessive senses of the word, like everything is allowed, but um, at what cost? Um, so I guess like most liberals, he, he burrows back down into his cave and, and um, has a cry. <laughs> oh, <I don't> know. <laughs> what are your dreams for Rennie? Where do you think his uh, rightful place in the world is? Um, well, hopefully, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, where is his rightful place in the world? Um, <laughs> hope, hopefully, uh, he can he can be used to to kind of show up the. Um, the incompetencies that surround us, maybe, maybe that's the best place for him to kind of be be able to reveal just the um the ridiculousness of what we're in at the moment, just in terms of our politics. You know, the the in, the inaction, the kind of the the stalemates, the the kind of the ideological divides that are kind of at, at some points in, obviously important, but also sometimes just so self-sacrificing and fruitless. So like maybe just to expose some of those, maybe. And what are you working on now, Mark? Um, I've got a show coming up in. Um, <laughs> I've got a show coming up in Penrith Regional Gallery as part of a curated show called Landing Points, that's curated by Haley Megan French, and it's it's from. Is that your stomach, David? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I think it might be. 
I was trying to hush it up, sorry. I'm sorry. And that's on from December the 2nd to February 24, and that's at Penrith Regional Gallery. And for that show, I'm actually um, revisiting the archives um, of um, not the gallery, but I think it's like of that area. And they're held at the the museum called the MAAS, which used to be the Powerhouse Museum. There's like this archive there of early settler pictures on the Nepean. And they're these glass negatives. So what I'm doing is I'm going back into the archive and revisioning them to kind of uh, speak to the awkwardness of these photos, just the way that um, I suppose the the figures in them don't sit easily in the landscape and to kind of haunt them. So I'm going to go back and Photoshop in um, a kind of a presence into the photo to kind of unravel them because they're, they're kind of, you know, they're so old and dainty and all this, but actually underneath them there's this kind of more... I think, um, uncomfortableness in the way in which these archives work, you know. <laughs> did you have breakfast, David? <laughs> I thought I did. I, well, that I'm sound sorry, is not unlike what I'd like to do to the archive, to have that kind of haunting <laughs> moment running through the image, like a, like a sad, hungry dog. Um, and then, yeah, sorry. And then in March, I'm actually in a show uh, that David's curating called Sheer Fantasy. And, right. and in that, I'm revisiting the the western and the road movie genre to kind of create a mise-en-scene where people will be able to create an appointment to enter this kind of truck scene in the gallery and you'll be able to have like a a, a road movie moment with Rennie Codgers and so so working off the western idea of the one-liner there'll be like a one-liner in in this show that kind of opens up a passage for each entry into the cabin where you'll go on a journey that's like kind of guided, I suppose, by Rennie to reveal your kind of your road movie or kind of like your your intimate fantasy that will mm. come out through the cabin. But that, that's on the um from the twenty fourth of March to the twenty seventh of May, and we're we're still developing it. But mm. and but you've, we've been look well, you've been looking a lot at um at Monument Valley, which is traditionally where a lot of westerns were set, like John Ford's The Searchers and, and the how the west Fort was Apache. run and. And also um, Toy Story 3. Oh, and, really? And yeah. Forrest, Forrest Gump. Well, Forrest well, well Gump. the interesting right. thing about Monument Valley is that it's, um, it's Navajo country. And so it has, mm. a, you know, a, a, a very kind of strong identity in, in terms of, you know, who owns that land. Mm. But the way it sort of exists in popular culture is through this kind of fiction, you know, through the Western, which is, you know, very white kind of male-dominated understanding of landscape. And you look at the westerns where Monument Valley is used and it's almost like this circular kind of fiction, like they keep going round and round in circles in this relatively kind of contained area and they never leave it. It just keeps going round and round. It's this strange fiction where it never addresses itself completely. It never really thinks about, you know, what's its meaning as a as Navajo country or as mm-hmm. as um those sort of politics. And so... I think Monument Valley is an interesting kind of created fiction to kind of avoid something at times. And so maybe, you know, for this show, I don't think you can necessarily overcome all those sort of politics of land and space, but but, um, you certainly can kind of bring it into question, you know, what is this fiction doing in in a Campbelltown, you know... um, you know, space. You know, dis- it's um. You know, once, twice, tenth times removed. Like, w- what is its connection anymore? So it can at least raise that question. But I think it's a very interesting kind of space, Monument Valley, the way it's kind of been constructed in in this in this fictional way. It sort of it, it distances itself from any actuality 
And so I think there's an interesting space between the actual and the fiction in, in the Monument Valley kind of landscape. So that will be coming into it in some way um, to play off yeah, both its fictional qualities and hopefully something else. So, yeah. That sounds really fascinating. Thank you so much, Mark. No worries. We're going to get back to our curated tracks by Post Motel. This is uh, Kudlam with Trans Peru. I'm sure another banger. That was Kudlam with Trans Peru, and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5, and this is Canvas Art and Ideas, today with Aurora, uh, <laughs> David, <laughs> Abdul, and Tina the Sausage Dog. <laughs> <And> the, 
the exhibition Sounding the Future at UTS Gallery asks, we always speak of visions of the future, but what if we were to let the auditory realm lead our imaginings? Canvas producer Laura Hunt discussed the show with the curator Gail Priest during the week. Here we go. speculate about um, not just about what the future will sound like but what art in the future will sound like and um, I decided to narrow it down to that because obviously it's you know it's too vast to think about you know what the future will sound like but the um, as an artist you know I I'm interested in how art is a concentration of ideas and how it's a comment on on how we're working in society and so by concentrating on what art in the future will sound like. I felt like this was channeling the, the idea into um, into a, an already reflexive mode in some ways. And I also knew that the whole concept is based around the installation that I've got in here, which I knew was going to be like this kind of multi-headed, multi-faceted catalogue of ideas. And so, yeah, I kind of wanted it to be that my work is, the, um, is like a kind of leaping off point of ideas and then I've asked other artists to um, not necessarily take up directly from my ideas, kind of work in the same milieu as that, that area of speculation. So my installation is also called Sounding the Future um, and I've been working on it for the last, well, it kind of took a year to make and then other aspects of the project have kind of been the last two years as well. Um, it's based on the idea of a, a hypertext, like a kind of multifaceted narrative, um, and you sit in the middle of it like you are kind of immersed in a, a website, basically, and um, you can navigate to different options that are projected onto the floor around you. We have been reading our ancients, and we subscribe to the doctrine of middles, without beginnings or endings. In the middle, we are here now, the only place we can be. Think of this middle as a plateau, one of thousands. It's definitely inspired by the kind of hopes and dreams that we had for e-literature in the 1990s, where we felt that there was this idea that, um, that the hyperlink was going to like free up literature into this um, totally multifaceted way of reading. And it didn't, didn't quite work that way, I think, in terms of creative content. It worked very much that way in terms of um, factual information gleaning and like social media and that kind of thing. Um, so I wanted, to, but I'd never quite given up hope on the idea of the kind of um, choose your own adventure kind of form of, of, um, of reading. And so um, I got interested in science fiction and making electronic music around the same time. And so to me, these ideas around um, 1990s media art theory, e-literature, and my practice as a sound artist have always been quite interlinked, and also my fascination with, with um, art in science fiction. And so this project kind of brings all these ideas together. Listen out. From our place in this now, on this plateau, 
one of them. Of um, my installation, I wanted to include non-fiction material, and that's definitely like a part of my practice. Is uh, has been as a writer about um, other artists' um, work, and um, so it was integral to me that it's my work wasn't just these speculative scenarios, but that it was also based in in um, present day art making. And so I interviewed um, a series of artists that I whose work I really respect about their ideas about what they thought the future would sound like and how they saw their work in response to the ideas of um, innovation as an attempt to approach futurity. And, um, and from those interviews, um, I chose the three other artists that I've curated in the exhibition because they um, very much engaged with the concepts that I was, I was talking about and, um, and offered really interesting perspectives on this. I'm with Peter Blamey, Gail Priest and Pia van Gelder to talk about Sounding the Future, an exhibition showing at UTS Galleries until the 22nd of September. Peter, one thing that's always struck me about your work is your connection with ethereal and esoteric energies, as well as sound that leaves a residue on space. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you have in this exhibition? When Gail approached me about being in the show, one of the things I instantly thought that I wanted to approach was the idea of apocalypse, of, you know, a non-specific apocalypse, some impending sense of, you know, physical catastrophe that was going to befall us in some way. But I didn't want it to be a, a overly serious vision of the future. So it had to have some way in which humans could be involved in that and, and that some way that the notion of um, the apocalyptic event could itself be recouped into something usable or however you might want to term that. So the work itself investigates this idea that the elements that would go into some kind of physical calamity would, uh, instead of being a catastrophe, just be a crisis point where the things that would otherwise seem to be being bad, like, I don't know, meteorites falling from the sky or fire or lava, could be things that we could source energy from. So there was this, it's not a kind of redemptive thing, I think a lot of it is probably gallows humour really, but there was an idea that it kept alive this conversation between people and their environments and the tools that they worked with to have that relationship. So somewhere in there, they're still, it's still playing with this idea of, of energetics as being a kind of, you know, lively, variable, functional thing that explains or doesn't explain lots of things about our relationship with the world. So somewhere in all that, in that whole ball of ideas comes this particular. should we stand in yours and Tom Smith's room and you can tell me about your collaboration for Sounding the Future? It's a video piece accompanied by a couple of objects, I guess you could call them. 
the video is uh, separated into two screens, of, like a split screen, um, which represents a conversation or an argument that um, Tom Smith and myself are having about a hypothetical star that is proposed to exist in 10 to the power of 15,000 years in the future, which is the iron star. So it's like a, an, it's a scientific a hypothetical star um, that, you know, uh, people who, who work in speculating about the future of the universe have come up with and, and the idea is that um, the material of stars which constantly changes, um, they go through a process of transmutation I guess you could call it, um, like layers of an onion, um, that somehow you know in this far distant future that they will transform into the, the, the heaviest compound iron um, and so at all the stars that still exist in the universe in that time will be solid pieces of iron. So I was yeah, interested in kind of thinking about what that would sound like or what that would be or how we could conceive that. So Tom's argument is that we, we can't ever conceive of this sound. And so he, his side of the screen is this sort of associative mishmash or, or collage of images of that we might associate with iron like train tracks, surgical instruments, um, there's also wedding rings and uh, anchors um, and on my side of the video screen you see um, a slow uh, zoom into what I've illustrated or a drawing of what I think an iron star might look like. Um, and to accompany Tom's side of the screen is this kind of um, sound that uh, cycles through, uh, that he's composed that sort of, it's like a, a musical, a, emotional uh, relationship that he, he associates with the objects, with the Anthropocene, how we who are stuck in the Anthropocene can only conceive of um, iron, like through, you know, pieces of armour is what we're seeing now. Um, so the, you know, you hear the sadness of battle and, and the, you know, these sort of ominous chords that, you know, you, you might relate to um, death and, and, and um, the loss of life. <laughs> that, that was Laura Hunt talking with curator Gail Priest and you're listening to Canvas Art and Ideas this Sunday morning on 94.5 FBI. And um, what's on this week, Absy? Underbelly Labs starts at National Art School and also the Big Anxiety Festival continues. There's stuff going on all over the city. Um, anything else? No, I think that's pretty much all, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our, our guests, Rennie and Mark. Um, Canvas is brought to you by a team of artists, Abdul Abdullah, David Capra, uh, Nat Randall, and Aurora Scott. Now to our final curated track, curated by Post Motel. Stay tuned for Weekend Lunch with Christy Moza, sorry, Mafazal. And our last track is Sybil Bayer. Happy this Sunday. Is, this is tonight. Happy Sunday. Tonight, 
is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.